Time now for the quote of the week. You know, one of the biggest pieces of news this week, or certainly got a lot of coverage, is what I call celebrity business. That's Elon Musk proposing to buy Twitter. I mean, I, th- I guess this is the latest development in the high-profile battle between free speech and social media censorship. For many, it's a debate whether who's worse, Twitter or Facebook, in terms of what I'd call unaccountable censorship. I mean, come on, they both, I think, permanently banned pres- the president of the U.S. They banned any mention of the Hunter Biden laptop story, which is now acknowledged to be legitimate. But the thing that really got to me is during COVID, they banned any mention of the Wuhan lab leak theory, which now is sort of the one that most experts would go with. And they got uh, you know, more than a little help from the mainstream media and some universities when it came to censoring any views on government's handling of COVID from, what, a growing number of experts who questioned the government narrative. Arguably the most notable and was the vilification and even official efforts to discredit the experts who signed the Great Barrington Declaration, which, wow, all they stated was, hey, why the lockdown approach is causing too many peripheral problems or lock-on problems like mental illness, child development, uh, delayed medical treatments have a big problem, addiction. And they said, instead, efforts should be focused on the elderly and medically vulnerable. It, by the way, it's interesting how little we hear that that approach has now been vindicated by the likes of the Center for Disease Control. That's the context, though, for the quote of the week. But this is an untenured professor at Stanford. And he was writing to Dr. J. Bhattacharya. He's one of the originator, uh, originators of the Great Barrington Declaration. But he's also a professor of medicine at Stanford, research Association at the Na- uh, associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. And he says, in quotes, I have heard you several times on television regarding COVID issues and find myself resonating with your views. I'm inclined to express those very same opinions to my colleagues and administrative members at Stanford. I have been reluctant, though, to date because, quite honestly, I expect that my faculty appointment would not be renewed. I have the perception that free speech is just not there. End of quote. Now, that's a concern I've read many times by experts, by epidemiologists who feared for their jobs if they questioned the current orthodoxy. And by the way, we've now come to the next stage of censorship. This is incredible. In California, right now, there's a new bill, Assembly Bill 2098. It's been introduced by a Democrat in the Legislative Assembly that says, doctors who deviate from an authorized set of beliefs do so at risk of losing their medical license. Wow. When you consider how many of the tenets of the government narrative about how to treat COVID, how to handle COVID, have now been dismantled. I mean, there's easy ones to recall. Things like, hey, don't wear a mask. That was the first, what, few months of COVID, then you got to wear a mask. I mean, there is other ones, though, like if you're vaccinated, you can't transmit the virus. Well, obviously, that wasn't true. I mean, there's a long list of them. But to say at the time, at any one of those times, that was against the government official narrative. And to say somebody, a doctor, a professional, who deviated from that could lose their license. I mean, that has got to be the epitome of anti-science. There's so many things wrong with trying to censor people in a profession. These are experts who are just questioning the narrative. I mean, it's all about questions. You think about how many things change over the years, including with COVID. 
when they're talking about don't wear a mask for the first several months to wear a mask to, hey, if you're vaccinated, you can't transmit the uh, COVID virus. I mean, all of that stuff. It's the questions that are important. Last word I'll give to Dr. Vinay Prasad. He's a master of public health, associate professor, Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of California in San Francisco. He says, when major decisions must be made amid high scientific uncertainty, as is the case with COVID, we can't afford to silence and demonize professional colleagues with heterodox views. Even worse, we can't allow questions of science, medicine, and public health to become captives of tribalized politics. Today, more than ever, we need vigorous academic debate. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. Today, I'm going to talk about some of the most important areas, or one of the most important areas of personal finance. But look at what we're being greeted with. We've got higher interest rates and inflation. Well, that's not shocking. We all know that. But I want to take this opportunity to make sure that one aspect of our personal finance that is so regularly overlooked is brought to your attention. Yeah, we're taking it on all slides. I mean, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the price of everything is going up. Well, it is. When we're, especially we're talking about the big three, food, shelter, and energy. I mean, we can put off buying other things like food or, or rather furniture or clothing, but not those big three. But when we report them, we hear about the price rises. Good example this week, you know, Amazon's adding 5% uh, uh, an inflation and fuel charge to all sellers starting April 28th, but it's going to get passed on to us. But is it really 5%? That's the part I want to bring to your attention. Every one of the increases that we're experiencing, milk was up 8.4% as an example. Of course, you know, gasoline. But one of the most important concepts is to understand that you're paying all of that with after-tax dollars. Consumers pay the increase with money they first earn, then pay income tax. So it's not just an 8.4% increase. No, you've got to earn something in the neighborhood for the average Canadian of like 11 or 12%. Then you pay the tax to leave 8.4% increase left over. I mean, I know there's a variety of individual circumstances, but I want to make sure we've got the idea because it makes the price increases far more onerous for millions of Canadians who don't have a lot of money at the end of the month. I mean, broadly speaking, Canadian full-time workers pay about 30 cents in provincial and federal income tax on the next dollar they earn. So if they get a raise, they only keep about 70 cents of it. And that's only the income tax part. Of course, you're going to pay a myriad of other taxes too. I mean, whether it's GST and PST in every province, but Alberta, but you know about liquor sales taxes and you know that, uh, prevent, uh, as I say, gas taxes, property taxes, carbon tax, all of that kind of stuff. But the point I want to make today is that it's not just that rise. It's if you're going to get the money together to pay for the rise, you've got to earn, whether it's 30% more to a max of 54% more. And this is important. I mean, keep in mind, at the beginning of the year, you had the Dalhousie Agri-Food Analytics Lab saying that the average family of four would pay $966 more for food. And I bet that's higher now because we've seen record wheat and corn prices, et cetera. But you'll have to earn 1300 bucks, most people, or more, up to $2,000 or more. You've got to earn that much extra to pay for that extra food. That's the part I want to bring to your attention. When you hear about these increases, always put them in the context is I'm paying for it with after-tax dollars. Ergo, I've got to earn even more than the increase is stated. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. And I'm giving it to President Biden 
and his very confused administration. But you know what? I'm using them because people won't be so offended because I could use it with some examples from Canada and other countries because there's so many leaders who fail to grasp the reality of an energy and food crisis. Let's start, though, with the absurdity of claiming that high oil prices are the result, in the president's word, caused by corporate greed, which completely ignores the reality of supply and demand, including the impact of sanctions slowing down the flow of Russian oil and gas. But to use his logic then, if this is because of corporate greed, these higher prices, how about this? The low prices from January 2016 to January 2021, I guess they're the result of corporate generosity. Next up, though, that's not all. Despite acknowledging the food crisis is real, and he's done that over the last few weeks, then the administration turns around and increases the amount of corn-based ethanol allowed in gasoline during the summer months. His goal is to lower gasoline prices because people will like that. Although he failed to mention, by the way, that the miles per gallon would be reduced too, but let's come back to adding more corn-based ethanol to gasoline. Food for gas tanks, not for people. Well, that wouldn't be much of a slogan for the midterm elections, would it? But it would be true. Sending the food into gas tanks? Come on, we've already got pr uh, corn prices have skyrocketed this year, which has pushed the price of corn flour higher, any other food with corn as the ingredient. But here's the other thing. It's pushed costs for the livestock industry even higher. That's going to be reflected in higher meat prices. I mean, this is antithesis of saying, hey, we want to do something about the food crisis. They're making it worse. But here's arguably the big one. That's repeated, as I say, in many countries. But President Biden declared that oil companies, because of the high prices, aren't, in his words, in quotes, doing their part because they're not increasing production. Instead, they are, in quotes, choosing to make extraordinary profits without making additional investment with supply, end of quote. So, yeah, they want to have more supply. But think about this. Just a month ago, his same administration asked Congress to institute new fees on federal oil and gas leases that have previously agreed upon costs, but he wanted to force firms to drill. How about this? The same Democrats that are calling for a windfall tax on oil companies because they're, in quotes, ripping off Americans, but he wants them to increase supply? Less than two weeks ago, they forced oil company executives to appear before the Energy and Commerce Committee who accused them of price gouging. Come on, is it any wonder that the industry doesn't trust politicians, at least some of them? They want them to spend big capital investment to up production. But they're worried they're going to be back to being vilified by the political class as soon as this immediate crisis is over, which, of course, then jeopardizes their new investments. They're not making investments for the next two weeks or even two years. These are longer-term investments. Well, I think simply put, they don't trust the political class. And why should they? Look at the contrary kind of verbiage being used or directed at them. They're called greeting. They're called rip-off artists. You know, they're being called to account. That is not how you encourage more production. I mean, who in their right mind would trust these grandstanding politicians? Well, certainly not the major investors needed to significantly increase production. You know what? So they probably won't.